I'm Adam Rapport, and this is the Fun of Tea Foodcast. And uh, I'm calling in on a phone to record this intro because it is Fourth of July week. And I decided, like, you know what? I'm not going to come to work this week. I'm going to, quote unquote, work remotely as one does these days. Uh, anyway, so this week we got two segments. Uh, editor Laura Andrew Knowlton first sits down with two time James Beard Foundation Award nominee, Chef Todd Richards, who won two Atlanta restaurants, one Food South and Chicken and Beer. Uh, and his most recent accomplishment, though, is his first cookbook, Soul. Uh, Andrew talks to Todd about the importance of history in influencing his approach to food, the development of the book, and, of course, because Knowlton's going to Knowlton, pimento cheese. Uh, and after that, uh, I talked to Claire Saffitt, uh, BA's own Claire Saffitt, about four recipes she created for our latest grilling issue, which I want to say is on stands for another week or so. That's our June, July issue. Claire took four classic sides for your typical, you know, weekend barbecue, things like pasta salad and three bean salad, and kind of like modernized them and lightened them up and made them brighter and even more delicious than the classics. Uh, so, anyways, hope you enjoy. Here's to cooking a lot this weekend, and uh, let's do this thing. Todd Richards, welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, we share a few things in common. One is we both grew up in the ATL. You didn't grow up in the no, ATL. No, I grew up no. in Chicago, but you know, I've been there since 91. I was a freaknik baby, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that makes me uh, a little bit older than I might admit to, but yes, I've been there for a while. So first and foremost, happy cookbook publishing today today's the day right today's the day this is absolutely crazy i'm still like i'm over here talking to you i'm still pinching myself right now <laughs> you know n- never imagined in my career that this would happen so the, the the cookbook is called soul a chef's culinary uh evolution in 150 recipes i know you've been working on this book it, your entire life but how long have you been working on it you know kind of writing it and the idea permeating it really took about a year to write okay. the book, spending nights between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. writing these things uh, and really having a great team just, you know, to call at 2 in the morning, say, hey, am I doing this right? Really took about a year to get it all on paper. And then, you know, having wonderful publishers and, and editing and all that stuff really took about six months. But it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm. So, you, you, you know, you're no spring chicken in terms of the food world. You've been doing this for a while. Uh, my first job in Atlanta was actually at Kroger. I was a butcher first. Wow, and that, was, then, that was my childhood, you know, grocery <laughs> store. Right. I always think Kroger used to have a. They made some of the best fried chicken that I ever had back in the day. Still, and they were they were actually that was back when grocery stores had butchers that actually knew what they were doing. Correct. Too. And that's where, that's where you learned the art of butchering. That, that is my, where I learned the art of butchering. And, you know, far removed from the cellophane generation of now where everything comes already right. wrapped. You know, <laughs> we actually had to, you know, know how to break down a, an, an animal to, to do so. So I, I know just to, to give people a little bit of insight, you worked at the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, three Ritz-Carlton's. Ritz-Carlton, Atlanta, Buckhead, and West Palm Beach. Right. And then, obviously, uh, One Flew South, which... You know, I remember when it opened, it was such a revolutionary restaurant because it's it's not a normal restaurant. It is where it is in the airport concourse yeah. <laughs> E of the airport, you know, with knives chained to uh, to equipment and, and things like that. But it's such a phenomenal uh, reward to see it. Actually, this is 10 year anniversary 10 year. in August. And this is at Hartsfield, Hartsfield, Jackson, Airport. Jackson. I was I still call it Hartsfield. I can't. Well, you, you, you know, yeah. you're, you're a, a younger Landon. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you were there before the, the Jackson came on. That's right. Uh, Maynard Jackson, who used to be the mayor of Atlanta. Um, so that and then also you 
just opened Chicken and Beer, not just, but recently. Recently, Chicken and Beer and Concourse D okay. uh, with Ludacris, and then I have Richard Southern Fried uh, in Crog Street Market in Atlanta as well. Right, and if you haven't been to Atlanta recently, you need to go to Crog Street Market. It's it's uh, Atlanta's kind of gone through this boom of, like a lot of the U.S., but these food markets, and I think between Crog Street and Pont City Market, those are two great uses of space that weren't being used in Atlanta and that revitalization of Atlanta. I think it's absolutely correct. You know, the uh, Crock Street Market was actually owned by film uh-huh. and then they sold it. And then uh, I think it's really part of the neighborhood. It's uh-huh. one of the great walking places yeah. still in Atlanta and, and MM Park and the Beltline comes right there to it. So I, I love just seeing all types of people coming there. And, and on the weekends, it is more tourism than, uh-huh. than, than locals. But during the week, just seeing the local following yeah. that walks there, it, it's really rewarding to see it in Atlanta. So before we get into the book, I, I just have running a restaurant anywhere is difficult. Running a restaurant in a airport with all <laughs> the purveyors and, like you said, knives that are chained to the cutting board. Correct. What's the most difficult thing about, uh, about overseeing a place like that? Um, really, uh, just understanding timing. Yeah. That most of our deliveries come overnight when we're not there, so we're trusting people to yeah. do, to to do some uh, staffing, which is a major problem throughout the uh, United States right now. You right. know, just finding enough staff for all three restaurants, but particularly in the airport, One Flew South is still so revolutionary that everyone st- comes. I mean, it is right. busy all the time. If people knew how much sushi we actually went through in that one restaurant, it's it, it's amazing. And even I was walking by it the other day. I was coming from Oklahoma City to New York, and it was via Atlanta. And you walk by it, and, and even if you don't know what it is, just the, the the aesthetics, the look of it makes you stop and be like, this doesn't look like a normal airport restaurant. You know, certainly, certainly my partners in there, you know, they have TGI Fridays right across the street. So you got to understand the dichotomy that people are still looking at those shiny bright lights of TGI <laughs> Fridays. And you walk past one week south and he's like, what is this place? You know, you know, and why is everyone smiling? Right. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, and why are the glass chinging? You know, and it's got still to the point where we have to ask people, how much time do you have? Because right. we have people right. miss flights all the time. Right. Still. Because they're, they're like into their third course. Right. right. Oh, third, oh, third, oh, third bottle of wine, <laughs> you know, whichever comes first, you know. So you mentioned um, born and raised in South Side of Chicago. That's correct. Um, the book is called Soul, and obviously uh, I imagine your family at some point came from the South. Correct. Uh, my um, mom's family came through the Carolinas, through the Ohio. Okay. And my dad's family came through Louisiana, Mississippi, so okay. up, up that route. So, And part of that migration that happened... To Chicago by correct. a lot of African Americans from the South. That, that that's absolutely correct, and it's really a great juxtapose because one is you know the debates of rice in the household uh-huh. you know started at least a lot of food conversations <laughs> like who's rice you know the way you make rice is, especially come from the Carolinas and then grits versus rice was a, a, a interesting one and then having this Midwestern uh, form as well when you have you know debates of cream of wheat you know how does cream of wheat you know focus into into that kind of conversation right. as well so. So, so having my, you know my parents you know and our family migrating to the south with these midwestern uh, sensibilities uh-huh. really uh, helped start the beginning of soul. How is soul food now that you've you know you've lived in Atlanta quite a bit? How is soul food different in say Chicago as it, it is in the south? Is is I, there a difference? I, I think there's a big difference. Yeah. I, I I believe the ingredients um, you find in the south lend itself more to year round adaptations of these of these dishes like okay. sweet potatoes and things like that you may not always see that in in, in the north in new york 
And in Chicago, I think Chicago's soul food is a little bit spicier mm -hmm. than you would find in the South as, as well. So a lot of those things are steeped. And then the ingredients have changed uh, you know, tremendously where everyone was using ham hock and bacon. People use smoked turkey now. And, and, and more vegetarian dishes are, are happening in, in soul food. And it's really a great way to see the return of, of this art form that, that most people don't know that, that during that time period, they were mostly vegetarians. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, meat was a, you know, no one could afford it, right. <laughs> you know? Right, so, so when you see a dish like collard greens and it only had ham hock in it, you know, well, that's probably all they can afford at that, right. at, at that it point It wasn't just, time. obviously it makes a delicious pot of collards, but yeah. it was out of necessity as, as much as it was uh, flavor. Mo most, most certainly. And then also understanding that, and I'm giving a history lesson of, of, of food a little bit, but that that the fat, when the fat congealed on top, you know, all those beautiful collard greens were left down below. So yeah. it was more, more technical than, than what people might think instead of just saying it was intuitive. Actually, it was a technical way of preserving anything below it, just like if you make duck confit. It's the right. exact same thing. The fat protects the meat the same way the fat that would rise to the top of the congeal would protect the collard right. greens below. So uh, in the book, which is beautiful, by the way, it, it, to it, your I mean, beautifully written. The photography is great. I, I can't say enough about you know the the studio you know at, over at time that that did it and then having a great friend of Angie Moser do right, all she's the great. all the exterior shots of of the book is is amazing. Well, I mean, you know, at Bonavitie we we get a lot of cookbooks that land on our desk right, as I'm you sure. can imagine, <laughs> and you flip through them and sometimes you know you just kind of you know toss them aside and, that, and right. that's what they go. But then there's ones for me. I mean, I have a connection obviously to to this food and and to you being you know from Atlanta or, or living a lot of your life in Atlanta and it just kind of pulled me in and and I will say one thing that you did is is interesting treatment with the chapters you kind of took those those iconic kind of categories of soul food Correct. if you will you've got collards onions uh, you go to seafood obviously corn tomatoes beans and rice melons but instead of you know kind of the stereotypical idea of what soul food is, mm -hmm. which that's not really you because you didn't grow up. You, you, you cooked soul food with your family, but when you got into professional cooking, you didn't cook soul food. I, I grew up in a time period where there were not a lot of images of black chefs. Right. And, and and so, our, our, you know, heroes um, were the ones they see on TV first, you know, the Jacques Pepins of the right. world and things like that, and saying that you want to cook those same techniques as these famous chefs. But then when you realize after a while that the same techniques that they're doing are the same techniques my dad did. You know, interesting, my dad is a great barbecuer, mm -hmm. and he would actually you know put fill a sink full of water put all the spices in it he was brining chicken while he was cleaning the ribs getting ready for the barbecue and that technique is you know brining technique everyone's like it's intimidating to most people yeah but really it's not it's just my dad just filled a sink full of water put spices and salt in there let it sit there for two hours while he cleaned the ribs uh -huh. smoked the ribs and put the chicken on and that's why the chicken was so juicy yeah. afterwards so i started to realize that the techniques didn't didn't change when the cuisine changed, right, it was always technically driven at home, and that's the reason why I wrote the book. So, w was it that you know you say that obviously there weren't a lot of people on TV or out there of of, of black chefs that that you could look up to? Um, so you know, gravitated towards people like Jacques Pepin. Correct. If there's anybody else to learn technique from, I don't know who. I else, mean, you, still, know. you still watch that guy on TV. He still cuts a chicken the best <laughs> yeah. way you know ever. You know. I think at Bon Appetit we watch. He's he's got this one amazing video, uh, which is just making an omelet, and it's making like a country omelet and then a city omelet or something. Yeah, yeah. And we, I just watch that like it's. 
I mean, he, he kind of reminds you of the same way a person approaches the stove or a person who's making sushi. Like, he never moves his hips. Yeah. You know, he's always just technically straight and forward. And, and that kind of discipline is what makes really a great cut. So it wasn't until really that you, uh, from what I've read, you went to the Ritz-Carlton in Buckhead. Correct. That was the last Ritz-Carlton that I that I that worked, worked at. Mm-hmm. And that was, there was there was an African-American chef working there. Well, that's a little bit before that. So okay. in, um, in 1994, I met Daryl Evans. And Daryl Evans was the first uh, black chef to be on the Culinary Olympics. He won okay. four gold medals, two silver medals uh, in, in competition. When he first uh, was appointed to the Culinary Olympics, uh, the governing board did not believe that he did the work himself. He thought mm-hmm. uh, Catherall, uh, you know, who's still famous in, in Atlanta right now, uh, did oh, all Tom the work. Catherall. Tom yeah, Catherall, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and did all the work for him. And then I believe that he did it. So uh-huh. he had to fly to Germany and redo the whole thing in front of all the judges to make sure that he can actually do it. Wow. So in that kitchen, you know, it, it sparked a whole conversation of it. And I actually met, you know, Jacques Pepin at, at the Four Seasons. We opened the Four Seasons Hotel together, Chef Evans and I. Okay. In 94. It transitioned from the Occidental Grand to the Four Seasons. Okay. And between him and uh, Patrick Clark, you know, from New York, Laura, yeah, of course. Yeah, legendary chef, yeah. You know, those were the two images that, that – really started happening for us in in the 1990s uh-huh. and just to see what's currently happened today with James Beard, you know, happening two two weeks ago, and and seeing you know five African American chefs win awards, it was incredible, it's un- yeah. unbelievable, and then the strife for for women also, the women that you know won awards, we're mm-hmm. seeing progress, and mm-hmm. I always say because we're both in the South or, or from the South that the South is leading the way in in, in that transition of diversity in mm-hmm. food. Well, you know, I selfishly I've always thought that the South has the most vibrant and rich, although it's it's a obviously a dark and troubled past. I think there's a lot of good that can come out of discussing food, and it seems like that is happening right now. I can say that I'll tell you, the best vegetables come out the the worst soil. Yeah. And and that's what's happening with, with conversations of race in the South, is uh-huh. that, 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 that that's worst soil that of of history is, is sparking the best conversations and changes are happening. Uh-huh. So, so with your book, and, and we talked a little bit about, you know, stereotypes and about what you know, perhaps people expect you to make. But this book, you, you have a classic collard recipe, but then the the five that follow. They're not really classic. No, they're not at all. <laughs> but they're those ones that are that are furthering the conversation about what soul food is, because soul food is is what you make of it, correct? It is the true American cuisine. I mean, you have to understand that the term soul food starts in 1950. To say African-Americans' contribution in this country started in 1950 is, is a, you know, it's the... The worst thing you can ever say. So if it didn't start in 1950, then it means it can't end in 1950. So right. starting with dishes like traditional collard greens, the most one of the most recognizable soul food dishes there is, and then progress it to collard green ramen and collard green pesto. Right. And still using that inert ingredient that we all love and, and have so much respect for is the progression of soul food. So I do, I do have a, a a small beef to pick with you on on one of the recipes I was flipping it, through. Is that cornbread? No, no, it's okay. not cornbread. <laughs> okay. Well, cornbread. <laughs> so we have this debate here about sugar in cornbread. Yes, I, I, that's that's a debate that will, um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's a debate in my family. You know, but you have to understand, growing up in Chicago, that that Jiffy, you know. Oh, my mom still uses <laughs> Jiffy, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, so that sweet cornbread was always always present. So in in our Thanksgiving, we had Thanksgiving at our house. We would have sweet cornbread, but if we go to another person's house, it wouldn't be. Okay, 
But but if if you if you had one last meal of cornbread, are you putting sugar in the cornbread? Um, yeah, I like the I like the the juxtapose of of both. Okay, I I really do because the outside can be not as sweet, but the inside is a little bit sweeter. I right. like the juxtapose, of, and it depends on the butter too. You know, the butter makes a a big make difference. difference. My my, I, it's a slippery slope for me because I feel like sometimes in New York you get cornbread and it's it, it veers into just corn muffin territory. Correct. You know that you get at the coffee shop. Right. So that that's always scares me. No, the recipe that I was uh, flipping through, and I'm kind of known as like. Uh, I think they call me Pimento Cheese Boy here because oh, okay. I'm well, always. I have my grandma's yeah. Knowlton, which is published. <laughs> you, t- you. So my grandma Knowlton's has just like sharp white, sharp yellow cheddar. Okay. Obviously mayonnaise, Dukes if you can find it. Hellman's right, okay. works good too. Uh, Definitely not Miracle Whip. Not Miracle Whip. Okay, we agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously pimento peppers, whatever peppers you're using. Correct. Maybe a little bit of cayenne. Mm-hmm. But you. You have, and I've seen this before, cream cheese, apple cider vinegar, adobo sauce from canned chipotle peppers. Yeah. And you're also making basically your own kind of roasted bell peppers. Correct. T- tell me about this pimento cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it really lends itself well to a, a lot of different uh, variations. Uh, at Richard Southern Fry, I have it on my chicken sandwich. Okay. So you, imagine a fried chicken sandwich with pimento cheese with all this kind of spice and everything. But I think that what I found was that I never liked pimento cheese if it didn't have enough acid. Okay. In it. And that's the reason that the addition of apple cider apple vinegar, cider vinegar. D- does it. And Worcestershire, too, because Worcestershire has a good amount of vinegar in it as as well. So I like that balance of 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 everything. A great recipe to me has the four quadrants of the tongue on it. Bitter, salt, you know, sour, and sweet. Right. And, and you cannot uh, have a complete dish without it. And I think that's what pimento cheese is. I think it's always been a complete dish. Now, the cream cheese comes in from a spreadability mm-hmm. standpoint, especially for this recipe because it's going on toast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be substituted with avocado. You can do a lot of different things mm-hmm. with it. But the same way, you, you know, you started that pimento cheese recipe from your family is yeah. the same way mine started. I exactly. just picked up a lot of things on the way. And I've actually heard rumors that pimento cheese is actually from, it's not from the South. It, it, it's, no, it's, it's not. It's from the North. It is. Gosh, gosh when I heard that, it took me like a week to get out of bed. <laughs> I know, <terrible>. right? <laughs> you, know, you know, I would tell people, sometimes you invent things and sometimes you take things that you invent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk a lot about your growing up in Chicago with your with your mom and your dad being cooks. And one one uh recipe I think that your mom was known for was her fried catfish. Man, that thing, man. It's it's still uh every time I, I, I make it I I just feel her presence a, uh, around me. Uh-huh. My dad worked overnight from eight at mor- eight at night to eight in the morning on on the weekends, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. What, did, what was his profession? He was a data processor. Okay. Uh, and before you know floppy before floppy disk was yeah. even floppy. So tell you <laughs> pre floppy yeah, disk. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, still with big tape like uh, what was that movie? Uh, War games. War games. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. that's that's <laughs> what it looked like. And so my mom would fry catfish on Friday for him, and we would go out to a family's house or, you know, see parents or, or, or go bowling or something like that. And my dad would eat all the catfish, but those little crumbs at the oh, bottom yeah. that would fall off. And then the tail, the tail was the prize piece. My granddad was the only person who could have the tail. Really? That's the, because it's like eating a catfish potato chip, you know, that crispy tail yeah, at the end. Yeah. And when he passed away, because, you know, I would sit next to him all the time at the table, I was the one who got the, the nice. tail. So my dad would leave the tail 
you know, for me because you know that was my favorite piece, and that cartilage on it, and that is like the best piece of, of catfish. That's almost like the the oyster on a chicken. Yeah, or something, same, same, right? same thing. You yeah. know, and it's so prized. And, and to me, you know, just in understanding the book and the progression, like catfish, I use catfish like eel. Almost in the same sensibility yeah. that when you slice it, it looks just the just the same, and, and techniques you can use it the same way. Uh-huh. One dish that you write about also is something that I grew up with that I don't think a lot of people who perhaps didn't grow up with the southern foods around mm-hmm. is salmon burgers or salmon croquettes. Yeah, yeah, salmon patties. I mean that. Now my dad did those expertly. Yeah. He was the expert. At and you that. have to use the canned salmon. You know, you? you know, we did not. We oh, used, you didn't. We use fresh salmon. Oh. I think recipe in the book talks about fresh salmon. We never use uh, canned salmon. Well, my sister does. Don't okay. remember. My sister. My does. mom used canned salmon. Yeah, and there's yeah. nothing absolutely wrong with yeah. it. But but you can use fresh salmon as as well, and it's really great too because if you grill, you know, if you go to a store, you, you have way too much salmon left over, or even trout or, or fatty mm-hmm. fish like mm-hmm. that. You can make these croquettes with it. it. To me, it's nothing better on a Sunday morning. Glass of champagne, you know, a couple of croquettes, a fried egg. You know, that's wow. Well, the recipe in here looks delicious. It comes with uh, great croutons. And that's the frugality of my dad, who would never throw any food away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we made way too much grits you put in the freezer. He would slice those things up, flour them, and just fry them again. So what would he do with, uh, let's say, if you were making collards at home in the stems? Would he make stuff out of the stems? Well, well we, yeah, we always pickled the stems. Always and, pickled the stems. And, and that was really from my neighbor next door, who was uh-huh. from, from Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh-huh. I l- learned that from, from her. But always pickled the stems, especially the the, the bigger ones. Uh, if they were young collard greens, we would just chop them and, and put them in there. Right. Yeah, and that and that's funny because you talk to some of the kids these days, they'll think, oh, this pickling thing is new. Using stems or the, no waste, and it's... Right. It yeah. really goes back. You know, the food of, of today is the food of yesterday. We just have to reimagine it. Right. Um, so I always ask chefs when they when they have a cookbook is if if... If if you handed this book to somebody, what would be the one recipe that that you would want them to make out of out of soul? That's that, that's a really tough question. I I, I still and, and I've wrestled with that. I think you still have to start with collard greens first. Yeah, I, I think you have to understand the broth, mm-hmm. and it's like watching Iron Chef and that broth of vigor that you talk about. You know, it's it's the same kind of. You have to get into the broth, into the depth, into the the character of, of soul food, and there's no better way to, to to have broth. It's you know if you look at the Jewish community with the matzah balls, yeah. you know, soup. You know, there's no better way to understand it by by drinking the broth, and I think that's uniquely what collard greens would do. That pot liquor. That, that pot, people, I mean, it's un, unbelievable. Yeah, are you? Uh, are you tasso or guanciale or what? What kind of what kind of pork product are you? Do you I, use I, I, I I still like ham hock. I yeah. think it's the best part. And also, uh, what we do, we pull the fat off of it, and then we pull all the meat and put it back into the uh-huh. into the collard greens. Uh-huh. And then before I have one thing to end on, which is always fun, but I I, w- I did want to ask you because I'm looking at the back cover of this book, and it's a watermelon dish. What it looks like cantaloupe and. Uh, yeah, that's just compressed watermelon. I think that's uh, with herbs and, uh-huh. and, and everything. And uniquely, watermelon was one thing that I talked about in the book. Yeah, that's that chapter. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you address the fact that it became a symbol of almost uh, African-American entrepreneurs selling watermelon. Correct. Yeah, and then, then it became... A caricature. Yeah. And and I believe that for soul food in, in general, and the soul is cuisine to have the same place as French cuisine or Japanese cuisine, that we have to understand that that food 
is always going to be part of our history mm-hmm. and that if we celebrate it then can't no one take it away from us yeah and, and watermelon to me is is the celebration food there's nothing better in the summertime you know than yeah. just a, a slice of watermelon you know and you can pickle this uh the rind and do all those things but it's just a refreshing item that is still uniquely american that came out of the africas uh-huh. and and to have that dish be a caricature is a slap in the face not only to the slaves that came here but to us as a progression group of americans in this country uh-huh. and that's why i wanted on the back cover to say that we're going from we're removing the stereotypes we're embracing our own cuisine and yep. we're going to celebrate it just like french and japanese cuisine around the world yeah amen is 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 the kind of proliferation and the popularity of southern food and and that food is African American food. That food is slave food. That it, it, how do you how do you feel about that? Are you you know that, that it, you know you go to California and you get Nashville hot chicken now? You know, or you could yeah. go. I, I, I think the economics of it is a little bit disappointing. Understanding yeah. that you know that it takes a lot of money to open restaurants, yeah. and, and if you can't, if you don't have a home to put up, you know, your home for things mm-hmm. like that, the, the access to capital is very mm-hmm. difficult to find. But I think also is that it's required to us to embrace it. And we could look at the other art forms like, you know, hip hop embraces who they are. Yeah. And, and and you can see with film with like Danny Glover, you know, what he's doing right now and, and Donald Glover as well. You know, the two, you know, you have one who's very old and traditional mm-hmm. and you have this new guy on the, on the scene, you know, who shows that, that black culture is not just one thing. You know, it has a, a, a great spance. And that's the same thing with soul food, mm-hmm. that it's not just one thing. It's not only watermelon collard greens and fried chicken Mm -hmm. you know it's really more sophisticated than than what we give it credit for yeah totally yeah it's it's just a beautiful book and i'm really proud as 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 a a fellow in atlantan to celebrate this book and and i encourage everybody out there to go buy it and and cook from it it's actually a book that you can cook from you know i tell people don't send me any instagram pictures of the book unless you got like hot sauce or or some (laughs) oil in there like you use the book i don't want any clean this is not a coffee table book is it i mean you can i mean (laughs) you know i'm not going to turn down the sale but still i want i want people to actually you know cook in the book to understand the journey and and the evolution of food and how you can understand the people all right, now here comes the hard part uh, of being on the, the Bon Appetit uh, foodcast. This is our lightning round questions. Okay. The only rule is you have to answer one of them. Okay. All right? And I didn't make all these up, so don't, <laughs> if they're ones that's silly to you, you can be like, come on, man. Uh, roast chicken or fried chicken? Wow. Can I Ooh. say both? No, you can't. You got to pick one. That's the only uh, rule. Cold fried chicken. Cold fried chicken. I'm behind that. Mm. Atlanta Braves or Chicago White Sox? Chicago White Sox. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean the Braves. I mean I, that they make me mad. Okay, <laughs> especially <laughs> me especially, especially <laughs> since they left my neighborhood. I you know I only lived like a mile away from there, and they left. They went to, to Cobb County. I know. You know. Well, who goes? To they, that they, they, they might as well be in Chicago now. You know, uh, sorghum or maple syrup? Uh, sorghum. Tell how do you use sorghum when you're cooking with it? Very uh, specifically uh, with dishes that. Don't require uh, granulated sugar. Okay. I'd much rather use the grassiness of sorghum for it. Okay, and that like that has that grassiness flavor, yeah. a little bit more depth. Julia Child or Jacques Pepin? Uh, Julia Child. Oh yeah. Yeah. Chick Fil A or Waffle House? Waffle House. Amen. I, I, I make my own chicken sandwiches. I don't need. Chick-fil- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Busy B or the Varsity? Busy B. Tell people what Busy B is that people it, who don't know. It is the. Um, the oldest operating uh, black-owned restaurant in Atlanta. Yeah, and it's an amazing place. Amazing of place of, of fried chicken, collard greens. Uh, the Varsity is an amazing uh, place for hot dogs, but being from Chicago, um, 
it's got to be a specific <laughs> hot dog for me to eat. <laughs> it's got to have that green. Yes, yeah, that neon green relish and uh, peppers and uh, celery salt. Let's do uh, let's do Hartsfield or O'Hara. Hartsfield, definitely. Yeah, O'Hara is an island of its own. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet tea or Coca Cola? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I like Coke Life. Sweet tea, nah, I'm, I'm not a big sweet tea fan. No? Nah. You know, one time I went to a place in Atlanta, and it was after I'd lived up up, up, up in New York for a while, mm-hmm. and I went back, and you know, the woman was like, what, what do you have, honey? And I was like, I'll have a half sweet tea <laughs> and a, a half regular tea. And she looked at me, she's like, you're not from around yeah. here. And I'm like, well, I used to be. You know? And she'd take the menu away from you, <laughs> <Yeah>. too, right? <laughs> sweet tea or sweet tea or die. Yeah. Uh, Let's do biscuits or cornbread. Oh uh, wow! Now that one's that one's tough. That's like choosing children, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Favorite ch- child. Yeah, I, I still say that I, there's not a biscuit I can turn turn down. And you have an interesting biscuit. There's a place in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, called Mama Dips. Yeah. And you write about the daughter, Erica Council. And she has a special kind of flower that she uses. I don't know. Erica is the she her her tagline is uh, Southern souffle. That's what she calls biscuits, and she's a biscuit whisperer. Like really, I was like, I have to have biscuits in this book, but I cannot write this myself. I have to go get Erica, and <laughs> she came to the house, and she's in the back of the book, and just the way she sculpted the biscuits dough in her hands, it's yeah. like she never really even touched it. She just formed it together. It was the lightest damn biscuit. Man, oh my goodness. <laughs> you just get mad at it, right? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Late night grilled cheese or late night pizza? Cold pizza. Cold pizza. Pecans or peanuts? Uh, definitely pecans. Strawberries or peaches? Mm, that's a little bit not fair. They're they're not they're because we have seasons in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, strawberry season is almost over. Peach season is just it's just starting. Are the peaches going to be good this year? I know it's been rough. The past Stra- couple strawberries seasons. are phenomenal. This is the best strawberry year I've seen in probably about five years. And peaches, I think they're going to be good. They're going to be a little bit smaller this year, but they'll be good. All right, so let's go with catfish or sardines. The only reason I ask about sardines is I know in the book you grew up eating sardines out of a can, like on a cracker with yeah. some hot sauce. Yeah. Um, two different applications. I love sardines. Yeah. I mean, just grill them, man. They, they, the oiliness that comes out of them. Mm-hmm. And, and most people don't know that you can get sardines straight out of the water in the Mississippis. Right. You know, so they grow right next to each other. All right. Last but la- not least, the one, the one question we ask everybody mm-hmm. Butter or olive oil? Butter. Butter. That's that's the correct answer. Yeah. 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 Well, olive oil has a purpose. I haven't figured out what that is yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Todd Richards, author of Soul. uh, It's out now. Thanks so much, Todd. Thank you for having me. Claire Saffitz, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. You have a piece in the June-July issue called Side Hustle. Mm Mm-hmm. Who titled that? That's a great title. I didn't come up with that. You know, I thought it was a great title too, and then I realized, like, oh, we've actually used that like twice before, <laughs> either like in the magazine or some dot com piece. I'm like, oh, no wonder why we think it's so good because like we've obviously, yeah, right, right, it's in our DNA. Uh, so it is a good headline this month, and we'll maybe we'll probably use it again next summer or something. <laughs> the subhead is uh, these lighter, brighter takes on stalwart barbecue side dishes just might overshadow the main course. So talk to us about the the concept of this article, and then we can get the specific dishes yeah we came up with the idea for this story during one of our big sort of like editorial wide ideas meetings where we sit down all together and you lead the meeting and we talk about 
what do we want to include in this issue? So for the grilling issue this year, um, the idea was to take those classic barbecue sides like macaroni salad and collard greens. Three bean salad. Right. And try to give them a little bit of an update because especially in the warmer weather months and you're outside and you're at a picnic or a barbecue, I think what exactly what you don't want is like the really mayo-heavy yeah. sides that are kind of sitting out at room temp. Gloppy. So, yeah. So we just wanted, yeah, the word gloppy came up a lot in <laughs> talking about the recipes. I love mayonnaise, as you know. There's nothing grosser, though, when the mayonnaise gets kind of crusted over in the sun and right. kind of shiny. Yeah, right. That's not good. Right. Same here. Like, not, not <laughs> nothing against mayo. I just don't want it sitting out at room temp in the hot weather yeah. um, covering the food that I'm about to eat. So we try to think of um, sort of lighter, um, sort of more vegetable-forward versions, kind of brighter, a little fresher tasting um, that would complement those sort of fattier richer meats that you're also preparing. You know, we updated them and did sort of modern takes on the macaroni salad, the three bean salad, the collard greens. And coleslaw. And the coleslaw. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's let's go through this. Um, let's start with, what do we call this? The kimchi, spicy kimchi slaw. Uh-huh. Actually, I think this was Brad's idea, our test kitchen manager's idea, to do um, sort of take all of the flavors and ingredients in kimchi itself and to turn it into a fresh slaw. Because, you, you know, coleslaw is just sliced cabbage and usually like a mayo dressing. So. It's Napa cabbage, uh, shredded carrot. I actually really like buying the shredded carrot that just comes in the bag from the grocery store because if you sit at home trying to shred carrots, it's kind of a huge pain. It's not easy. I will say this. I, I love making my own coleslaw. I have been known you can actually buy those bags of the dull pre-shredded cabbage mm -hmm. deal. I grew up on that. Yeah, because mm -hmm. like sometimes like I just, especially if you're rushing to do this and that, I'm like, fine. Okay, so taking shortcuts. Yeah. It's okay. Yes, we endorse that. Um, there's scallions, there's cilantro, and then the dressing itself is a creamy dressing, but there's no mayo or dairy in it. It's actually blended kimchi just from the jar. Because we were thinking about this recipe and the ingredients in kimchi, there's chili, uh, there's Korean chili flake, like go gojujaro or gojujang, which is the paste. And those, that's a little harder to find. So we said instead of pulling that ingredient out, just use kimchi itself and blend it. Uh, and it creates a really light, thick, creamy dressing. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not mayo-based and it's not dairy. Um, so it's kind of punchy. It's pretty spicy. You know, it, it is pretty hot, actually. So I think we, we call it out in the title. So if you're spice-averse, you can kind of dial down the kimchi a little bit. Um, but it's just like a really bright, crunchy, um, sort of light side dish. And I would say you can make everything in advance, including the dressing. Just don't toss it together until yeah. you're ready to serve it. And like just having that nice, spicy sort of fermented crunchiness uh, it's such a it kind of wakes up anything you serve yeah and we love calling for those fermented products in our recipes because it is a way to get all of this flavor that's developed over a long period yeah. of time into a really fresh dish like this and I, and I love slaw in general because if you're making something like ribs or a steak or a burger it's so rich and often kind of fatty and then to have something that has not been cooked and has a natural crunch and crispness to it I think it's kind of the perfect compliment. Yeah, and I, Napa cabbage works really well for slaw. Explain to people which one the Napa is. Napa is the one that has the thick white ribs and then the very kind of light pale green leafy ends. And that's why I like it for slaw. But slob. wait, is Napa the one that's it's shaped the, like a, a giant like, football one. sort of thing? Yes. Like kind of variegated leaves? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so it's not the big round globe one. Yeah. So I like Napa because you do get all that different texture from, you get the, the leafy bits at the end that are kind of more tender and green, and then you get the really crunchy, like watery um, stalk. Yeah. So I think in the recipe we say to just tear up the green parts and kind of treat it like lettuce, and then once you get to 
the the white core that's a lot crunchier to thinly slice. So you get all this great textural variation, the carrots in there. Um, it has just a really nice balance. You finish with some sesame seeds. Um, it's just a really fun, I think kind of interesting take on kind of boring classic coleslaw. Some cilantro. Cilantro on top, yeah. I, I still don't understand the controversy of cilantro. People are like, oh my God, I hate cilantro. Like, who, who are the people who don't like cilantro? There was that article from like 10 years ago or something in the New York Times about how it tastes like soap for yeah, some people. It's like a, a genetic that, thing, I think. BS. I'm not buying that. Like, <laughs> oh, just because the New York Times said it, then it's true. Whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I've, I've made a couple converts, actually, to cilantro. Yeah, yeah. I, I think everyone likes it. They just don't know it. All right. So love that one. Um, Emma over here, our producer, did a nice write-up for the charred bean and pea salad, calling out the special star of the salad, which is like the smashed crispy garlic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, so this has a really simple dressing where you just take a bunch of aromatics. It's like cumin seed, uh, crushed garlic, uh, thinly sliced ginger, a couple, I think, black pepper, and you just sizzle it in a pretty generous amount of olive oil on the stove, over low, just until the spices kind of sizzle and the garlic turns a little golden, and it kind of like half cooks, so you get a little bit of the raw flavor, um, but it also kind of caramelizes, and then that just gets tossed with a little bit of maple syrup and lime juice for mm. balance. So, like you want all, you want that acid to kind of yeah. cut through everything, and then a little bit of the maple for balance against the spices, and it goes over this this big kind of like mess of, of any kind of pole beans, so like wax beans, green beans. Um, we did sugar snaps and also you could do snow peas. Um, and I love the cooking method for this. It's really, really easy. Um, instead of having to, so often um, like recipes tell you to blanch your beans, which in summer is kind of a pain because then you're boiling water yeah. and then like I don't have an ice machine so then I have to go like take out all my ice trays and like make an ice bath. You don't so, have an ice machine? Not in my fridge. <laughs> no, I, just, I know, no. I mean, I don't mean like the ice maker no. in your freezer. I know, but how else would that be have like, and some people do have this, like if they have like the big, big giant houses, but having like your own personal like bar style ice machine in your kitchen. I don't even think about that. With like the big I, scoop and I don't everything. even dare to dream about stuff like that, Adam. It's but just, don't you have to, I think you have to use the ice machine fairly often so it keeps it going, right? The really good no, ones? I have no idea. I have no idea what the problems are for people that have ice machines. I They're love, not my problems. I love ice. Have we done an ice podcast? We did talk about it. There was it. ice primer. We right? did it in the magazine. In the magazine, But yeah. I just think like with like ice baths, ice buckets for your wine in the summer months, mm-hmm. uh, ice for your cocktail, certainly. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have too much ice in the house. Well, I hardly ever have ice in the house because of my freezer situation. But so I didn't want to have to do that for the for yeah. this recipe, which I'm sure like Emma appreciated when she made it because I'm sure we all live in sort of small apartments. Um, so you just broil them. It's really, really easy. You toss them in a little olive oil. You spread them out on a baking sheet. Um, and the recipe we sort of tell you to take a, like a cooling rack and set it inside your baking sheet to okay. kind of elevate the beans a little bit. It gets them closer to the to the burner. So we're talking like an old-fashioned broiler like our moms would use like on the top of the oven with right. the flames. Right. Whether it's at the top of your oven, which I think is for most people, or in the, the some, drawer the, underneath. pull out, mm-hmm. yes. Putting them on a rack elevates them and it lets a little more air circulation underneath so that they don't steam quite as much. But they kind of char in some yeah. spots and then they, they cook through in the oven and some are a little softer, some remain crunchy. So you get great... Um, Great texture, and it they cook in like two or three minutes. Yeah, and what I like about the recipe, it says one and a half pound green beans, wax beans, sugar staff peas, or snow peas, and basically it's like what what you can grab, what looks good. I think this is one of those good things. You when we go to the farmers market in the summer, so often we're looking for strawberries or tomatoes, and but there's tons of beans there, and it's like yeah, grab, whether they're yellow, 
wax beans or green beans or mm-hmm. little skinny ones. Mm-hmm. You kinda. do Romanos. Yeah. You could even do asparagus, you know, if it's, I mean, that season's, mm-hmm. season's kind of passed, but yeah. it's a great way to cook them. Um, and, and, and I love this recipe too because I really like to eat things with my hands. And so yes. you kind of pick up bean, bean yeah. by bean um, and th- that crunch is kind of addictive. All right, can we talk about the garlic for a second? Because like, all right, so we're prescribing, take a clove of garlic, smash it with the side of the knife, like mm-hmm. flat down, um, remove the skin and just throw that in the oil. I think like, Garlic's fascinating because if you don't cook it enough, it's still too raw. If you cook it too much or if the heat is on too high in the oil, it gets to that burnt sort of acrid taste. Mm -hmm. But if you let it go at medium heat long enough, just so it starts to turn golden brown, it kind of almost takes on a, a sweetness to it. Yeah. And it has a crispy, caramelly quality. And yeah. It's so good. The sugar's caramelized. I think the key is seeing small little bubbles around each clove. You don't want it at like... A, a you know really high heat so that you're you're really kind of like yeah boiling like I said it. don't don't try to do it too fast right right yeah I think people have this idea that like a, a lot of cooking has to happen over high heat yeah which is not true at all I th- you know it's in in many cases like low or medium heat is your friend it, it, I mean it comes back to sort of knowing what it is you're doing whether you're doing a steak or garlic garlic you don't want to burn you're not looking to get a hard sear on it um, you know and. Oh, we could do it. We have done whole podcasts on heat, but yeah. um, I do think with with something like this, you've got to stay on top of it. Watch it. This is not a set it and forget it thing because if you overcook the garlic, then the whole dish is not the whole. You know, the, your dressing is yeah. ruined. So like, make sure you get it to exactly that right sort of color and golden brown. Yeah, I mean, you your nose is a good indicator. If you start to smell it getting pretty garlicky in your kitchen, then you're going to want to take a look at it. Um, but the other thing is you don't want to cook it too hot or too high because there's also whole spices in there, which can, those Ooh, can burn let me ask you a question. and go bitter. I, I don't love cumin. Oh, I really? I find it kind of annoying. Maybe I'm, cumin is my cilantro. You find it annoying. Yes, I find the entire spice annoying. <laughs> I don't like the taste of it. Emma's looking at me like I'm like from Mars. I just, and I can always tell when someone puts cumin in something, and I'm like, there's cumin in this, right? But even when you try like a Latin American recipe or a, even like a Szechuan recipe that uses cumin, you're not yeah. into it? No. Really? No. Okay. Well, then in your case, I would say substitute with coriander. How do you feel about oh, that? coriander seeds. I like those. Okay. Yeah. See? All right. Okay. Cool. That and was easy. Exactly. They're flexible. Coriander seed related to cilantro. <laughs> yes. The right? seed of the cilantro plant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It all comes around. <laughs> Okay, no, this next one. This was a fun one to eat in the test kitchen because this one does get carby, but not in like, or this is a riff on macaroni salad. And like, I, what I don't understand is you go to the supermarket and you buy like the elbow macaroni salad with the little bits of carrot and stuff in there. Why the hell is it so sweet? They put yeah. so much sugar in the mayo and like people bring it to barbecues. And you're like, this is disgusting. I yeah. can't eat this. I mean, I didn't grow up on that stuff, but anytime I saw it somewhere, I was like weirdly drawn to it. And then I would taste it and it would be like, I would like slap myself on the wrist being like, why did you just eat that? It's not good. Yeah. I mean, and I hate, I hate like the big pieces of really crunchy raw carrot. Yeah, what's that too, all about? Who invented this and, and how it became like the industry standard? Right. And the pasta is so overcooked and mushy oh, too. God. Um, so we wanted to create the anti-macaroni salad, um, but it's a little bit. It was a little challenging because when something's served cold, you know, it's hard to get a, a dressing that's like oil-based to really cling to the pasta. So I did a couple versions of this where I really kind of just tried to dress it in more of a vinaigrette, and it wasn't quite working. And also, the pasta absorbs so much of exactly. the sauce. Exactly. And so then it, it it's like, where did all the dressing go? Right, and then it becomes dry. So we, I kind of decided to use 
sort of a, a quick version of like a romesco, which has pureed roasted peppers in it. And that gave the sauce a lot of body and like a, a sort of creaminess to it without adding, without it being mayo-based. Yeah. Explain explain romesco and its Yeah, sort of romesco is sort of a Spanish sauce made from, I think typically like roasted almonds, probably yep. Marcona, yep. Um, but you could really use any nut, and roasted red peppers um, and garlic. So Oil. An oil, yeah, yeah. A, little, a little bit of sherry vinegar too, um, at least in this version. So we we made we made that, and then I think the key to this was cooking the pasta al dente, but not past al dente. Like you want to fully cook it through, because when you when it cools down, it does firm up a little bit. So it's usually in recipes for pasta, we say cook until very al dente, and then it cooks over, it carries yeah, over yeah. a little bit. So in this case, you're just fully cooking the pasta, but not not beyond that. Um, and then tossing it with the romesco that we build in a food processor. It also has sort of garlicky breadcrumbs mm. for texture. Yeah. Yeah, the key for Love this that. was getting a lot of different textures in there. Yeah. Um, so you don't get that mushy pasta salad sort of thing. Right. Um, and then another good tip for the pasta salad is you can make it in advance. Of, co- of course, it's you know it's served cold. And in fact, all of these recipes were designed to be made ahead and served at room temperature. So um, you know there's there's not that pressure of like getting something out as soon as you make it. But you can go ahead and toss half the dressing through the pasta and then let it sit. And it does kind of absorb the, the dressing and all those flavors. And then just right before you serve it, just toss it with the remaining of the dressing. See, I love that tip because that the, the first dressing sort of imbues the pasta with flavor. And then the second one gives you that nice dressing-ness yeah. when you bite into it. Yeah. And to make it kind of summery, we added chopped tomatoes. So because I love sort of you get that like fresh, juicy bite also um, in addition to the pasta. So you have the tomatoes and the breadcrumbs. Um, it's tossed through also with a little um, basil for freshness. Um, and I love the pasta shape that we use. Oh, my God. This. This stuff, where, where, all right. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Because I, when I walked in the test kitchen that one, I was like, whoa. Yeah. It looks like a giant drill bit or something. <laughs> right. This is um, a, a giant fusilli. Though you could use like any corkscrew shape, um, I just love the way that it cl- it holds the and sauce. This is called fusilli gigante. Correct. Uh, and it really is about like about like an inch, inch long and I think maybe big even longer. Grooves. Yeah, yeah. really big grooves. Um, and it, and it, it, what's also nice about this sort of um, pasta shape with a, a dress a, with a sa- for a salad that's dressed like this, where this the dressing itself is kind of thick and chunky and then you've got the breadcrumbs and, it, and all those grooves sort of catch all those little good bits mm-hmm. you could use regular regular fusilli you could use if you can't find the fusilli gigante you could use a, like a medium shell pasta would be nice because yep. that will also kind of hold all of those other ingredients what you don't want is a long pasta not a strand right yeah you right. want something that catches the sauce right right uh all right so that one's called romesco pasta salad with basil and parmesan oh Parmesan, oh, and Parmesan. Because, <laughs> right. because there's always Parmesan. Uh, all right, one more to go. Um, this one is the one that uh, Rachel Carton, our social media manager, wrote up for the website, and she was uh, obsessed with the um, the bacon broth. So this is uh, wilted greens and tomato bacon broth. This is the side that is the least um, maybe, I don't know, least salady, although it's certainly, right. you know, sort of harkens back to braised, you know, whether it's mustard greens or collards, and I assume that was a sort of inspiration for this one. Yeah. We wanted to do something with 
cooked greens, all the beautiful greens that are available in early summer, um, but not one that had to be cooked for an hour and a half. Yeah. Like you typically have to cook collards. So it's a really fresh, It's the greens are really just kind of barely wilted. So they do maintain um, some of their crunch a little bit. Um, but you get that kind of, I love the the sort of wilty texture, especially of escarole, which is yes. one of the ingredients in here. Um, so you build a really quick bacon broth. You basically render some chopped bacon. You add some sun gold tomatoes. You could use regular. Those are the yellow ones. You yep. could use um, regular cherry tomatoes. And those kind of, um, they char a little bit on the, in the bottom of the pot. Um, and burst, and I love using tomatoes this way to kind of give off their juices and create a little bit of a of a, of a cooking liquid. Um, and then you just it's also add- nice because when they when they release their liquid, uh, when you're doing sun gold or cherry, they kind of there's a viscousy quality mm-hmm. to it. Also, there's mm-hmm. a little, it gives it a little body. And I love tomatoes because they have both acidity and sweetness. So yeah. the balance is already there. Um, and then you really just add water because wait, Kim, that's an interesting point because you mentioned uh, talking about balance. Uh, you had like you're talking about the romesco and you have the olive oil and the sherry vinegar mm-hmm. then when you're talking about the bean salad you were talking you had the olive oil from the garlic olive oil and then you balance that with both acid and the lime juice mm-hmm. and then a little touch of sweetness mm-hmm. and the maple syrup yeah and- my palate is really geared toward sweet sour flavors mm-hmm. i love acid um, but I also i always want it to be balanced with a little bit of sweetness so i think like people don't think about necessarily sugar whether it's white sugar or maple syrup or agave or honey as an ingredient for cooking but it ends up in a lot of recipes because it really does balance out so many of the other savory ingredients yeah i feel like a lot of like old-fashioned traditional quote-unquote american food sort of lacked that dynamic quality Mm -hmm. of acid and a little sweetness whereas so much of the world's cooking embraces that on a regular basis and i think we're finally getting around to that in a more common sort of cooking method here in the states yeah all my favorite like global cuisines are that's a hallmark of them is that sweet sour like Vietnamese yep. um, it's I, I love that balance I also love like, it when you're in Mexico anywhere you rest, you're all, there's always that little bowl of beautiful little limes cut up in the middle of the table mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's just expected you're gonna give that little squirt right the limes that like food stylists pay so yes. much money for here because they're so pretty and small <laughs> you cut them on those sort of a side cut and they're just like ooh, yeah they, right. they make any photo look 23% better right <laughs> right um, so you're oh, making oh, yeah. bacon oh, yeah. broth. Bacon All right, broth. so you got burst. You have a, you, you render some bacon, burst tomatoes, then what? Yeah, there's a little bit of onion in there to get that sort of allium, that that sort of basis for like all good stocks or broths. Um, but it's really water based because there's so much flavor that's being given off by the tomatoes and the onion and the bacon. And there's a little bit of vinegar and honey in there. Like I said, for the same reason, um, it just sort of balances everything out. And especially with a lot of those hearty greens, you want some acid there to cut through. Like they're so earthy, you kind of need to brighten them up. And then you really just add, I think it's it's 10 cups of greens, so, so it's quite a lot. Um, and you just kind of press it down into the simmering liquid. And you're, we're saying torn greens. And if you're doing, we have a question always with, like we said, uh, 10 cups, torn greens, such as escarole, which is always easy to find, Swiss chard, which is usually pretty easy to find, mustard or mustard. Do we, I typically, if I'm making Swiss chard at home, I will usually remove the leaves from the stems and Mm -hmm. then sort of chop the stems? Mm -hmm. Or are we saying it's okay to sort of kind of rip it all up together and doesn't matter? I would take out the stems, any of those thick stems, like you could also use kale, um, Mm -hmm. because they don't really cook for that long. I mean, they hardly really cook at all. They just kind of wilt in the the broth. You're saying this recipe. Yeah, yeah. in this recipe, yeah. So they're like, if if you were to braise the stems first, then that would work. But um, the stems are going to stay pretty tough and fibrous. So focus on the leaves. The leaves, yeah. Well, what about, all right, so then 
do you have to be mindful in terms of how much time does escarole wilting time differ than say mustard wilting time you know does that make sense yeah escarole i mean all kind of wilts at the same rate but escarole is more tender than mustard so the mustards will stay a little chewy and the escarole will kind of um will soften a lot more but that's one of the things i like about it and of course the the parts of the escarole leaf that are toward the base that are the the thicker, the crunchier parts, ones, yeah. yeah, that'll maintain more texture than. See, I like the that. Green yeah, parts. like having some like the green ones that get really wilted, and then some that still have some bite to them. Yeah, so I, that's why I like using the mix of greens because you get sort of all different, not only just flavors and textures. Like I love how spicy the mustards are, and then escarole is a little sweet, a little mild. Um, so a mix is really nice. But if like all you have around is kale, or all you have is mustard greens, then that would work too. So you would serve this room temp but mm-hmm. doesn't need to still be hot out off the stove nor do you want to chill it i don't i would not want it cold yeah. like cold cold from the fridge because the bacon fat kind of you know does sort of unpleasant things when it cools down <laughs> but you can do it you can do it at room temperature absolutely it's delicious at room temperature i love the photo of this in the magazine just like the colors the different greens you have some chopped uh, little sort of like what are those like red fresno chilies mm-hmm. on fresno. top mm-hmm. the burst sun golds um sort of the glistening broth Although I would say this is probably the one compared to like the kimchi slaw, the bean salad, or the pasta salad. This is probably the one that doesn't travel as well because it's so brothy. Yeah, the liquid, yeah. you're going to have to put that in some kind of container. Yeah. I think you could bring the other ones to a barbecue. You probably would not bring this. That's true. That's true. I mean, you could kind of strain off some of the liquid and just bring it as sort of like a, well, cooked green salad. I really don't want that actually. No, um, no so this would be. Three out of, hey, three out of four is not bad. <laughs> right. You know, right. bring it to the if park. If you're hosting, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is for the host. The other three, you know, Emma can bring to her friend's barbecue. There you go. Uh, all right. So, Claire, thank you so much. Side hustle in the June, July issue of Bon Appetit. Also, you can find these recipes online. So, one more time, we got the Romesco pasta salad, charred bean and pea salad. Spicy kimchi slaw. I am making that one. And finally, wilted greens and tomato bacon broth. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Claire. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.